welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, November 6th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. So, I don't know about you guys, but I find that grocery shopping these days can be a tad bit overwhelming. I find myself standing in the aisles trying to choose between organic, high flax, rich in omega, low in fat, high in protein, reduced sugar, and you get the idea. One of the choices I've noticed recently are foods that are high in antioxidants, which I hadn't really thought about until the Academy hosted a conference on oxidative stress earlier this month. At this point, it occurred to me that I didn't know what oxidative stress was, or exactly what an antioxidant would even be fighting against. So I decided to find out. This week, I talked to two experts in the field. I learned what oxidative stress is, what it means for your body, and hear about a cool study that looks at the effects of air pollution during the Beijing Olympics. Plus, we talk about pomegranate juice and blueberries, of course. I'm standing outside the New York Academy of Sciences offices in front of the Seven World Trade Center building and the World Trade Center building site. Two new buildings are beginning to rise from the construction site and jackhammers pound away. A lot has changed since 2001, including the air quality. When the Twin Towers fell, New York City was engulfed in a cloud of chemicals, dust, and ash, which New Yorkers inevitably breathed in. Many people, almost 10 years later, continue to suffer from respiratory distress and disease, even though the air has since cleared. It doesn't help that the air quality in New York City is a little bit smoggy to begin with. For those of us who live in big urban cities, our exposure to air pollution and molecules called free radicals is much higher than someone who lives in the fresh-aired country. This means that we tend to experience higher rates of something called oxidative stress. Andrew Gao is an associate professor at Rutgers University in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. He researches reactive oxygen and nitrogen species, or free radicals, and what these mean for our body. So really what a reactive oxygen species or a reactive nitrogen species is something the term chemically is partially reduced. So uh, chemical compounds either can have their orbitals full of electrons or empty of electrons and generally they try to get to either be full or empty with the outer orbital. And so you can move between those two. So the example is oxygen itself, which is what we use when we breathe and respire to give energy in the body. So oxygen uh, basically will pick up two electrons, and in the process of picking up those two electrons become water. And so oxygen is the fully oxidized form, water is the fully reduced form, and that's how we turn over energy all the time. But sometimes electrons go missing and you get partially reduced oxygen, and that's things that some people might have heard, things called superoxide and peroxide, like bleach that we use in cleaning toilets. These are partially reduced species. Because they're partially reduced, they're desperate to get to either end of the scale, and that means they're quite reactive. So they'll give an electron or pick up an electron from somewhere else to make themselves fully oxidized or fully reduced, and so they become very reactive. And this reaction sometimes happens in our body. When we breathe a full lungful of air, there's bound to be a few reactive oxygen molecules in there. But don't get the wrong idea. Our bodies are actually made to deal with these molecules. I mean, the body is actually really pretty well adapted. I mean, the lung in particular is well adapted to try and deal with all the muck that you breathe. Roughly speaking, you're going to breathe about 10,000 litres of air per day. 
and in that 10,000 litres of air you're going to have a few billion particles. Some of them are pretty inert, some of them don't do anything, some of them are reactive. You have some systems to just stop them getting in, like breathing through your nose. You know, you're always told as a kid, don't breathe through your mouth. One of the reasons why is because your nose is there to filter out a lot of the particles. Uh, the upper airway will deal with a lot of it. The mucus and the cilia in the lung that remove a lot of that stuff. So sometimes if you go outside and it's particularly smoggy, you might find yourself coughing. That's because you're getting rid of some of those particles. And then we have specialized cells all the way through that lung whose job is to get hold of things that, you know, that might cause damage and make sure that they don't cause damage. And in general, you know, we do pretty well. We can walk around, we can breathe pretty noxious environments and do just fine. So the lung is pretty efficient at it. But obviously sometimes it gets fast and sometimes we deliberately do it to ourselves, like smoking. So sometimes reactive molecules get past our natural defense system and react chemically with other molecules in the cells in our body. Now, these processes are happening naturally all the time. Cells in our bodies use chemicals to signal to one another to do hundreds of different functions, like produce more cells, begin making a protein, or die. The problem is, we don't fully understand what role these reactive species of molecules are playing in cell signaling. As Gao explains, our bodies use oxidative signaling all the time, but the difficulty comes in distinguishing what signals are producing positive results and which are causing damage to our bodies. One of the easiest ways I think I can describe this and maybe something that people have heard about you know you sometimes hear about athletes going to train at altitude and why do you go train at altitude you go train at altitude because you're in a low oxygen environment the body realizes in a low oxygen environment using the oxidative stress that comes because of that to signal to make more red blood cells so that when you come back down to the low to sea level you've got greater oxygen delivery and you can run faster in the New York Marathon right so that is a body using an oxidative stress to give itself a response to do the appropriate thing and that's one of the things that I think has been a change in our consideration of oxidative stress. If you look back a number of years in the research, we primarily thought of oxidative stress as toxicity, you know, just bad stuff. Uh, and then what we're finding out more and more is that, in fact, we use oxidative stress. Our, our bodies are very good at sensing these levels. Some of this relates, obviously, into cancer signaling. Okay, one of the things that allows cancer cells to survive is they know they're under oxidative stress, so they adapt, they grow new blood vessels. That's how they metastasize. Maybe that's signaling that we don't want, but from the cell's perspective, it is the way it's understanding what's happening. It's using oxidative stress to do that. And again, that's one of the things where we can understand. If we understand more about the signaling processes, then maybe we can interrupt them. Gauss specifically working on how reactive nitrogen molecule species are signaling in our bodies. Personally speaking, most of what we do is, is related into the lung, and what we are looking at is primarily diseases of, of, of innate immune function. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of taught, you know, even from fairly early on in grade school, I think my kids learned this in grade school, about antibodies. We generate antibodies, vaccinations, and antibodies help us fight different kinds of infection. But we're actually in the lung, as we talked about dealing with all these particles, we have this whole innate immune system, a number of cells, a number of molecules, whose job it is to remove all that stuff without having any huge response, without recruiting extra cells, without doing all this. And that's their innate, and that's their job, sort of just to keep down all of these dangerous things that might come in. When they go wrong, when that innate immune system goes wrong, then you get consequent inflammation in the lung. And that's what produces emphysema, COPD, duct diseases. So we have some both... Uh, cellular models and animal models of the diseases that are like this and then we look for it's very difficult to actually measure oxidative stress mo molecules themselves because they're reactive so they they react in the time that you can measure them right so you can't find them but you can find hallmarks you can find things that have happened oh that's where that oxidative molecule was so we look in those models and say 
where was the, you know, do we find this bite mark, if you like, this little forensic clue that the oxidative stress marker was there? And, and what cells was it and how did it change them? And then if we put in, you know, say an, an antioxidant or a proxen or something that will change that signal, how does that change? We'll come back to antioxidants in a few minutes, and coming up, we'll tell you about an experiment conducted during the Beijing Olympics that studied how cleaner air affected healthy Beijing citizens, right after a short message from Science in the City. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts, you're listening right now, but did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science in the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org slash donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. While oxidative stress is hard to study because the molecules involved are so reactive, scientists do know this. The more exposure we have to these reactive molecules over a long period of time, the higher our incidence of chronic diseases, like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease or chronic fatigue syndrome. Meet Howard Kippen. I'm a professor of environmental and occupational medicine at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in Piscataway, New Jersey. Kippen's currently leading something called the Beijing Heart Study. Heart stands for Health Effects of Air Pollution Reduction Trial. Remember the 2008 Beijing Olympics and all the chatter about how the densely polluted air in the city would affect the performance of athletes who trained in cities with cleaner air? Kippen and his team saw this as an opportunity for science. It was my idea and uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Jim Zhang. He didn't grow up in Beijing. He grew up in China and he went to to a university there and then came to the United States and got his doctoral degree with us and he's on our faculty. We work together. He knew that the Chinese government as part of the deal the announced deal to do the Olympics had made a commitment that in order to protect the athletes they were going to reduce their air pollution by a lot. Their goal was 50% so that it would be about the same as in western developed cities at the high end of that. So we were aware of that, and we said, well, you know, and we spend a lot of time doing experiments where we try to put people in pollution for short periods of time and see if we can measure oxidative stress and other changes. We reached out to colleagues of his at Peking University, which is in Beijing, and formed a team to try to do what's called a panel study in epidemiology, which is to take a group of people and make observations about them every once in a while, periodically. And so for a lot of reasons, we decided to try to do this experiment in healthy people rather than people who already have disease, which is another way to do it and sometimes a better way, but we thought for this it would be better. And take these healthy people and make measurements in them during the period before the Olympics when the pollution would be at its normal level and, and our favorite pollutant is called PM 2.5, or the particles in the air less than two and a half microns in diameter. So it's just it's, it's, it's an aspect of pollution. Beijing's normal level has over the years has been about 100, one, as a 100 micrograms per cubic meter. And since they were going to bring it down to 50, that's a very big change, much bigger than our daily changes that we see here. They're usually a few micrograms, no more than 10. So we decided to make measurements in these people before the Olympics when the level was about 100, and then 
during the Olympics when it should have gone down to around 50 and then measure them again afterwards when it should have gone back up. Kippen and his team are still analyzing the data, but their results were pretty clear. We enrolled 130 medical students who live and work in the same place, so they're always there. We made measurements of the pollution there, so we have measurements for every day. And then we collected their blood, their breath, to reflect what's going on in their lungs, and their urine, and we did EKGs on them six times, twice before the Olympics, twice during, and twice after. And we're still in the midst of analyzing all the data, but what I discussed today here at the meeting is what we can measure in their breath is certain chemicals that we think reflect oxidative stress. They, they are not oxidative stress, per se, but we think that's what they reflect in the body. They also, to some extent, reflect inflammation, which is very closely tied to oxidative stress. And what we found was that the levels of these chemicals went down by about half from before the Olympics to during the Olympics. After the Olympics, they went back up, but it wasn't quite as neat and clean. The Olympics took a long time. The temperature was cooler and a lot of other variables. But we got very nice decreases during this. So, and so what we think that means is that the level of air pollution went down, and so did the degree of inflammation and oxidative stress in these healthy young people's lungs. And this isn't just the case in Beijing. The thing that we know best about air pollution is not about the radicals or the oxidative stressors. We, we know they're there, but what we know best about air pollution is from epidemiology studies that have been going on now for over 40 years, but especially in the last 15 to 20 years, that show without a doubt that when the air pollution is worse, people get heart and lung problems. Um, We can show this in cities all over the world on a day-to-day basis. If the air pollution goes up a little bit, just in the normal range for that area, more people go to the hospital and more people die from heart and lung problems. That's on a day-to-day basis. We know that people who live in areas of higher pollution than lower pollution live there all the time. So not day-to-day fluctuations, but just chronically like New York is dirtier than a city in Wisconsin, and then Beijing is dirtier than New York. We know that living in those high pollution areas also results in higher rates of heart and lung disease on, a, on an ongoing basis, not day-to-day change. Okay, so by now I'm feeling like no matter what I do and where I live, my lungs are doomed to fall victim to free radicals and oxidative stress, and by the time I'm 60, I'll be suffering from all sorts of side effects. Except that's, thankfully, not exactly the case. Remember that, as Gao pointed out earlier, our bodies are pretty well equipped to deal with these molecules anyway. And depending on your genetics, your diet, how much exercise you get, and where you live, you actually have some control over how healthy your body is and how well it copes with this sort of stress. And then, of course, there's antioxidants. Antioxidants help balance or neutralize reactive molecules in our body. Foods like tomatoes, pomegranates, berries, and green tea are hailed as having antioxidant powers. But do they really work? Here's Gao. Well, and so there's the thing, you know, the pomegranate juice, the added resveratrol in red wine. And, the, and so we do have a lot of epidemiological data that sort of says, you know, this is in general a good thing, you know, 
French people drank a lot of red wine and they seem to be protected against heart disease. And there's a reason to say resveratrol may well be, which is the kind of the red part of red wine. It may be protective. And that's one of those polyphenols that I was talking about, these phenol compounds that are antioxidants. And that seems to be good in the vascular system. Ultimately, understanding those mechanisms becomes in. But, you know, a lot of people take statins to lower LDL levels and, you know, change cholesterol levels. But statins actually have an antioxidant protective effect too. And that's, you know, has long been known this effect that statins for unknown reasons would sort of reduce the severity of stroke events if you're on a statin. So that was a good thing to take, but nobody quite knew what it is. And that seems to be one of those antioxidant functions. The problem, says Gao, is that there isn't just one form of oxidative stress. There are many kinds of reactive molecules which cause many kinds of different signaling in our body and many different kinds of reactions. The key is figuring out which antioxidant therapies work for specific signaling pathways. You need the right antioxidant in the right time to block the right signaling molecule, you know, because it's, it's, it's not just this question of pan-antioxidants, right? It's that you have to do the one that will stop the oxidant that's causing the damage that you're worried about. You know, I think that has you know, a particular relationship to a lot of the idea of that you can use tocopherols, you know, which is basically vitamin E, in, in you know, cancer prevention, you know, and this idea that you can use polyphenols and epicatechins, that you can see often, you can go to GNC and you can buy these things. Are they cancer protective or not? I don't know where you know. Uh, but you, you'd probably need to know what particular oxidant you're trying to act at. How do you get the right antioxidant there at the right time? And scientists are working on that. For now, neither Gao nor Kippen discourages eating foods that claim to be natural antioxidants. Basically, it can't hurt. But there's not a lot of science to back up the claims. In the meantime, I say take pride in your health, eat well, and take long, deep breaths, knowing that for the most part, your body has you covered. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week. <laughs>